you know, like you talk about Hindigam, I had um, Sidney Smith on my podcast who lost both of his legs. He had Charmary tooth disease, which is basically your ankles and legs fold in and break all the time. Oh my so God. he had that. And when he was like 25 years old or something, he got his legs amputated and he was depressed and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, you lose your legs. But then he became an Ironman triathlete. He actually completed the Ironman two years ago. And he's just like a savage. He gets up at three in the morning and swims two miles in like cold lake and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, the handicap wasn't my legs. It was my mindset. Yeah. And he's like, and then once you do that, then it spins. And that can happen. If it can happen for a guy with no legs, then it can absolutely happen for someone who's Native American or Hispanic or black or whatever. Is like, oh man, I can, yeah, things are up against me historically. Well, that just means that I'm resilient. There's a little picture that sits on my desk. I've had it framed for something like 14 years. It's an image I cut out of a magazine in college of a little pink fish swimming against a sea of blue and purple fish. Under the image is the word courage. I've been looking at it a lot lately with this constant question, what is courage? Sure, it's going against the grain, swimming upstream, not following the sheep, but charting your own path. But in my opinion, in the face of opposition, danger, pain, or intimidation, courage is that feeling you get when you act on something that you feel so called to do that it keeps you awake at night. And when you finally act on it, you don't just have butterflies in your chest, your heart races, and you feel like you could puke. But on the other side of action, even in that fear, you feel peace, like a weight has been lifted off your chest. Courage is the ability to use fear to do something. Hopefully, that something is something good. But what if it isn't? About a year ago, someone brought my attention to a book called Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Alinsky is known for his work as a community organizer and developer of nonviolent power tactics. He was most prominent in Chicago, I think in the 50s and 60s, but his work has seemingly resurged over the last decade amongst social justice movements. Number five is... Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. Let that sit for a minute. Here's another interesting bit of information. If you ever studied psychology in high school or college, you remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Our needs are designed into a pyramid, with the middle of the pyramid being belonging and love. We need to feel seen, understood, and accepted. Humans long for acceptance and approval. I see this in my own children at a very young age. Children want to please their parents and make them happy. Ridicule is used to make a person feel lesser, like an outsider, like they don't belong. It is an active form of stripping someone of their needs as a human being. Ridicule is ugly. This is actually personal to me. So I fully understand. Alinsky was right in saying that ridicule is a powerful weapon. But thankfully... I'm more resilient than ridicule. Ideas or theories have brought us to where we are today. Economic theory, gravity, human psychology, and neuroscience. Ideas are evolutionary and need to be challenged. Ideas require discourse. Sometimes they are proven to be good and right. Sometimes they are damaging and wrong. But all ideas seeking to solve problems require discussion around the varying possible outcomes. To restate one of my favorite sentiments, beware of unintended consequences. And my second favorite, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let's go back to courage. In today's environment, I'd like to believe that the people that are working to bring justice to those in need are doing something good. I'd like to believe that the intent and the desired outcome is in fact good. 
If that's the case, then you'd think that people would be openly discussing the various outcomes or consequences to the debated ideas. But they're really not. What we see happening today is a very loud minority seeking to effectively silence a very curious and questioning majority. This current method of ridicule that we're seeing in the streets and on social media, belittling someone because they don't understand a concept, because they'd like to dialogue on an idea, or because they just don't agree, this is not producing desired outcomes of a better life for humanity. It's just dividing humanity and even harming some. Mostly ridicule, there is little discourse and basically no progress. I'd like to share someone that I think is doing this dialogue thing right. Will Roosh is one of my favorite accounts on social media right now. Will is a high school teacher in Los Angeles, a father of three boys, a debate coach, a host of his own podcast, Cylinder Radio, a seeker of truth, and an ever-increasing voice of productive discourse and idea enlightenment, for lack of a better phrasing, on social media. Will is courageously trying to create space for productive dialogue around real issues. He has been ridiculed countless times and simply uses this negative energy to learn more. He offers up grace, curiosity, and compassion. For his presence on this noisy and divisive platform, I am so grateful. In our conversation, we talk about his role as a teacher, social justice concepts in universities, debate versus conversation, critical race theory, the human mind, the positive influence he currently sees from religious ritual, the, Chime the Chinese Communist Party and their influence on Americans, the value of discussing ideas and allowing your own ideas to be challenged, we navigate through a lot. I hope you take from this conversation what you feel valuable. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Pursuing with Ivy Gaskin Baker. In these minutes together, we explore the stories of individual people who are pursuing something meaningful to them, putting in the effort to build a life they are proud of. I hope you find some piece of their stories inspiring in your own pursuit, insightful as you seek to connect with others around you, or intriguing as you embrace curiosity and growth in your own journey. I hope you find some light in our conversation today. Enjoy the show. All right, so before we start though, what um what like ground because this is gonna be possibly when people who come in to listen to this, this might be contentious for people. Um, okay. as you've experienced in all of your in a lot of your conversations. Uh what ground rules do you want to set? What the ground rules that I like to try to always use that I have here, I post them all the time, those like pillars that I came up with. And I those happen very um organically, but just like kind of in what what's working and what's not working okay and uh, intellectual humility genuine curiosity and grace i just i like grabbing on it's just so simple so i make that kind of heuristic just to keep it simple okay but hold on sam again intellectual what yeah. intellectual humility okay so the idea that you could be wrong yeah like you might be wrong and like just always going into these conversations like oh here's what i think and i'll defend it but I might be wrong. So if I, if my defense doesn't hold up, then I got to kind of change my ideas or adapt them. Okay. Genuine curiosity, um, which I think applies to a lot of things that you want to, you want to cover. Like you are curious, you are, you don't understand it. When I see people post that stuff, like, I don't understand how someone can bubble. Like, that's a question. So go try and solve that question. You got to go actually try and figure it out then. So keep that curiosity. And, um, and, and then grace, which is, you know, just like, you know, assuming good intentions, you know, um, pausing judgment, things like that. Like, I think we, we've lost a lot of that too. So I try to, to, to apply those. And when I do, I feel like it, it works out better. Yeah. For me. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, I have the four agreements. You know, the four agreements by Don Manuel Reese. Yeah, I do. But um, remind me, I don't have a memory. Um, it's, it's, I have it like right here on my printer. Be impeccable with your word. Right. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions. Like my word of this year is I don't want to assume anything about anybody. Like that's my word. It's like get rid of assumptions and then always do your best. Um, mm -hmm. So those are like my pill, but I love yours. I love yours. I'm going to keep those too. Um, cool. Okay. So tell the audience what it is that you do. Yeah, uh, I'm a high school teacher. So I graduated college in 2005 and moved to Los Angeles from Pennsylvania in 2006. And I teach um, social studies. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I've, I taught at three different schools in Los Angeles, uh, two public charters, and then uh, I'm at a private like religious school now, which is very strange for me, but it's, it allows me to, to speak out um, on topics that I couldn't do at public schools. Um, so I teach U.S. history, world history. Um, I've, I have taught U.S. history, world history, geography, sociology, art history, economics, civics, government, all that stuff. Everything within um, so, um, social studies except for psychology, I've, I've taught. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you are involved with the Heterodox Academy. What is that? Yeah. So Heterodox Academy um, was started by uh, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, uh -huh. which just mentioned that's um, really changed the way that I see a lot of um, issues in society. So the idea that our brains um, see morality differently. And one of the things that he noticed while he was doing that was that he fell into it. And then he looked at the um, university system and the higher, higher education. And he saw that there was an imbalance of um, individuals uh, understanding of, of that, those moral foundations. So a lot of people who end up at, in academia have kind of one set of taste buds and the population's pretty divided 50, 50 in kinds of taste buds, but the, the university system is all dominated pretty much by this one um, kind of set of taste buds. So they're going to push morals that they believe in, of course, mm -hmm. um, but they're going to be having blind spots. So he, wanted to call for more viewpoint diversity in, uh, in the universities. So viewpoint diversity is like my whole thing. Like, you know, just seeing things from different angles, it's the podcast over there mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Uh, but they weren't covering K through 12 education. So I was a squeaky wheel and sent a lot of emails and tried to kind of get my, my foot in the door to just talk to them about how it's needed in, in K through 12. And they, I guess I kind of sold them on it. And then I started running a, um, a, an organization, online community um, section of Heterodox Academy for K through 12 educators. And we're up to like 180 different teachers who can talk in a safe space mm -hmm. about, about what's going on in their classrooms and um, what they see and what they think about policy that's good and bad. And it's like a real free, open place to, to talk. And then we bring in speakers, um, Lenore Skenazy, uh, who wrote, um, uh, free range kids and stuff. She's going to be talking next week. We had Paul Rossi, who was a teacher who was fired for, um, for bringing in viewpoint diversity and stuff, coming and talk to the teachers. So I, I work with them as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that a network just for teachers or is it for students as well? No, it's for um, teachers, um, administrators, or people in like PTA or school boards and stuff like that. People who are involved in education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
All right. So are most of the teachers involved or it might, you know, might be pretty diverse. Are most of the teachers involved public school, private school? Is it all over? It's, it's all over. So we have some who are at like the very uh, progressive, very expensive um, private schools in, you know, in New York and LA. And then we have teachers who are in rural Idaho, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, at a, like a public school. So we have everything which is nice because mm-hmm. then you get diversity of right. viewpoint which is exactly what the aim was exactly yeah that's good who are you hearing is kind of the loudest voice expressing like need for like hey i'm thinking like i'm having this issue i'm thinking through this problem help me who, where are you seeing that more is it more like rural america or no no it's just like okay so just like the universities so universities are dominated um by kind of one set of thinking it's not all universities it's not you know, uh, SMC down in Texas. It's, it's not, um, it's probably not even much at like, you know, like um, Kent State or Akron or something like that, but it is at Princeton. It is at Marbury. It is at, you know, um, you know, UCLA, mm-hmm. places like that. So it tends to be the more elite, for lack of a better term, like elite, expensive, Got it. coastal schools. Got so it. same thing with the K through 12, which isn't it shouldn't be surprising so it's a lot of the very progressive very expensive you know 60 70 thousand dollar a year um middle school elementary school high schools in los angeles san francisco um seattle um a a few in seattle and then um, mostly new york they're the ones who are concerned and it comes down to viewpoint diversity it comes down to not that what they're doing is necessarily wrong it's just that there's no no like speed bumps there's no one saying wait a second you're missing something here it's all one kind of thinking going into um the class going in from the administration to the teachers through professional development and then therefore the teachers and the students which almost creates this like if that does trickle down to students it creates this ideological um disparity so so a child that's coming out of you know, one of these, say, Ivy League or more elite schools versus a child that comes out of maybe a more rural or just state-sponsored school, they're going to see the world in a completely different way. And they're going to they're going to enter into the world and address issues in a completely different way. How, like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, don't, I think it's bad. I mean, well, they're going out and they're getting jobs. A lot of them get jobs in, you know, tech mm-hmm. and things like that. And if, if you're only taught one set of morality you say that this is just the what is right and wrong for human beings that's just not the way that it works it's not the way our brains work mm-hmm. and i ran into this because i'm from like a, a fairly small town in eastern pennsylvania moved out to los angeles and met my wife who's from the philippines and then lived in los angeles and totally different cultures completely different and then morality was different like what i said was wrong about how you raise kids she believed was right about how you raise kids. Like that's a huge thing that oh, we had yeah. to yeah. And I think that what you see is like, well, my way isn't all right. And your way isn't all wrong or all right. There's, there is that mix in the middle. And I think that what's happening is people are going up and they're getting jobs, you know, in tech or really it could be anywhere. Um, and they only believe that this is the right thing. This is the moral thing. And those people who are doing things. They're immoral people. When in reality, they're not necessarily immoral people. They're differently moral people. And, and I think that's getting into a lot of the problems that um, people in middle America or in more rural America would say like, oh, you know, 
the, the coasts don't understand us or the elites don't understand us and stuff like that. We don't feel represented. I think that might be why. Yeah, it almost feels like we're running on parallel tracks. Like we did, like he, and, and I think, and this is going to get to, you know, some of what I want to talk about later about like this idea of civility and this, this these two worlds and like a potential not like civil war happening between these two people who are trying to coexist and trying to live. And so, um, you know, my struggle is uh, I think diversity comes in all colors and also all like ways of thinking. And so diversity is not just the color of your skin or your sexuality or how you identify. It's, it's how you think. And I keep running into, and I know you talk about this um, on your podcast, which I want to address, but that, but it's just like this idea of um, your identity being tied to a certain way of thinking or, um, and I, and I'm curious too, and I'm, let's go back to talking about these schools with what Jonathan Haidt says and Heterodox Academy and all this, how is it that, that progressive views have evolved to be among elite circles? Like, what does he say? Or what, what is, what's the thought process there? Like, why is it that elites seem to think a certain way? The prog progressive, um, wing of let's say like the on like the, the left right spectrum and we're all somewhere on there right but the progressive ideas uh they the way john height and a lot of other people who are very brilliant with this kind of stuff so mm -hmm. you know steven pinker and you know john mcquarter and and just a lot of different people who are who you know are well respected mm -hmm. um see it as uh they, they've gone down this road into what you could call like critical social justice and it's it's good idea to have more social justice. Like that's the idea of justice. That's that's part of our, our constitution. That's a really important thing that you know the the law is set up in a way where bad actions are punished and good actions are promoted, type of thing. But there's a problem in in what's what's going on um, that a lot of people are seeing, and I'm seeing, and I'm trying to talk about, and I'm able to talk about, like I said, because of where I'm teaching is that it's not as clear cut as um, if you are anti something terrible. So whatever, you're anti-rape or you're anti-murder or you're anti, you know, racist is a big one. Like just having that label, well, how are you anti-rape? Um, you say like, well, um, if someone, uh, you know, uh, touches, you know, or looks at me in an uncomfortable way, then they should go to prison. Like I'm just using like a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. You go, well, that's not, that's not good. That's, that's breaking, you know, that's not, that's not a, a good way to do it. Or if you're anti-murder, then you do like a, like what's that, that uh, Tom Cruise movie, you go out and you kill people before they, you stop people before they uh, commit oh, yeah, the murder yeah. or something like that. Like there, there, there's, there's ways to solve these problems that are better than ways that to not solve them. And what's going on with a lot of like the anti-racist movements, which is what's happening big in schools, um, in K through 12 schools is the way that they're doing it is not always the best way, maybe. And the only way to really know is to engage with what, what are your holdups with this kind of stuff? And there's a lot of black intellectuals, like I said, like John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, um, Thomas Sowell. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, Camille Foster, um, John Wood Jr., Coleman Hughes, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, Chloe Valdery. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, 
um, really respect respectable, respectful thinkers yeah. and speakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. have like a resume too. They're not just like you know, like just like some people off the street or something. Like right. That. These are people who really know how the brain works and know what's going on. Eric Smith, who I had my podcast, the rhetoric and composition professor, like they're saying this is not this is not progressive. This is kind of going back to a lot of the old ways that we thought we would solve problems, you know, generations ago with a lot more of a focus on our differences and how this group is bad and that group is good as opposed to like finding our common humanity. So I think that that's, that's what's going on. Why it's only at these universities. Um, it's, it's a lot of echo chambers and bubbles is if you go to these universities, you are privileged and it doesn't really matter you know, you could have no arms or legs and be from another, you know, third world country and everything like that. But if you're in these institutions, that's an incredible, um, you know, step. Uh, and so they're from the from the professors all the way down. It's kind of one group of people in here. And if you speak up uh, against that, that dissenting view is often seen as immoral. And if you're an immoral person, then you, you know, are a bad person. So I don't know if that if that answers your question, but I think that that's it's something along those lines. A couple things to flush out there. My my personal view is, um, and something that I hear a lot of these like intellectuals that you've named, like Jonathan Haidt, for example. Um, I read at the beach. Oh yeah, coddling. It's really really. Yeah. It's, you know, having sons. You know, we both have sons. Having children, I'm constantly thinking about how I'm parenting my kids, and so that's something that. Uh, I, that book was very insightful and I, I'm like almost 10 years older than my sister. And so, um, she had a very different college experience and like growing up experience than I did. And so it's interesting because he talks a lot about in that book, he talks a lot about like what's happening on college campuses right now. And I was like, gosh, I didn't have that experience. I went to a state school in North Carolina and I was like, my experience wasn't like that. But, um, but it's been for, for a while isolated at, like you were saying, these Ivy Leagues or these very progressive schools, um, but it's seeping down into state-sponsored schools. But my, you know, something that I've thought about and, um, you know, is the idea of like muscle and atrophy. And so like we do things over, like we, we our bodies need resistance. They need to, they need struggle. They need challenges. We are resilient beings. And I think in this book, he says, we're anti-fragile. Uh, yeah, and, seems idea. Yeah. yeah, and um, and so I feel, and and you know, think really good thinkers speak on this about how you know we need struggle, and so in these very privileged circles, their lives are very easy. They're a lot. I mean, and they may have they may have over time, you know, built businesses and had challenges and all all is well, and maybe those parents that's their lives, but their kids. Or, or, you know, and money gets passed down, you know, I work with very affluent people in my work. And so I see this firsthand is like the lives of these children just keep getting easier, call it easier in terms of like what they have to struggle to achieve, but they face different challenges. I would think that they face different um, and you, you talk, you know, different, maybe more psychological challenges, like struggling with being or struggling with who am I, or what's my purpose? You know, if you don't have struggle, like purpose is found in struggle sometimes. Right. So I think I think to add to like the echo chamber conversation, which I totally agree with, is just this thought that like we're manufacturing problems because we are, life is just so like today, if you look back even 50 years, life is so much easier today with advent of all kinds of things, air conditioning. Oh yeah. I, I mean, mean <laughs> like Catherine the Great would have ice brought in and a big fan and she was like the richest person in the land. 
Yeah, like, um, but you're spot on. So I taught in, I went from one of like teaching in one of the most like poverty stricken gang infested areas in LA and East LA to West LA and a very affluent um, private school. So I saw this like, like from like three months difference and you're spot on the, the, the kids at the poor school would come to school and they'd like, um, you know, not have their shoes. I'm like, what's going on? Like, oh, I got jumped. So I got stolen, you know, my shoes got stolen or whatever, you know, kids would come in and they have a black eye. And then three days later, they'd be in jail because they killed the guy that gave the black eye. Like they had those kinds of problems. Mm. My students now, they like have an easier life. Yeah. And anxiety, way higher. Depression, way higher. Getting institutionalized for their depression, anxiety. The, um, the, they're overly, they're medicated on all kinds of stuff for ADHD and depression and anxiety. Um, the pressures, if you are born into affluence to continue that, like you think that it's like, oh, well, you know, your grandparents worked really hard to give you this nice life. Now you can just go pursue your passion. It's like, no, no, no. You got to keep this ball rolling. The, the expectations and stuff like that. Um, it's yeah. So that, that is, that is an element too. And that's what I found. Like a lot of people like don't have any kind of empathy for my students that I'm at, I'm at school now. It's like, Oh, you came to school in a Bentley. You got, you don't have problems. Like, yeah, but I haven't seen my, my dad in, you know, four months, you know, cause he's just out working or whatever it might be. Um, but yes. But then on top of that, I think the, the idea of America in general is America, even if you're poor in America and I, my, my married into my family that has family in the Philippines and you take, poverty stricken people in some of the provinces of the Philippines, you bring them here and you say, here's the slum of LA. Here are like the housing projects and stuff like that. They would say, well, these people are rich. I they know. don't have a floor. They have running water. Oh my God. They have toilets. This is unbelievable. So even in a, a if you're just in America, right. you are privileged worldwide. You're wealthy worldwide. So I think that that's one of the things And I heard Barry Weiss say this, um, recently on a, on a podcast, she's like, the reason why they're calling for such extremes and, um, and they don't believe that bloody revolution could ever like ever really be a thing is we're so far from it. I mean, you know, it's, it's rare that the average American sees, you know, um, you know, people dying left and right and stuff like that. it happens in bad neighborhoods and stuff, but not, you know, dying of starvation as like a regular thing. We are removed from that. So, I think that we do in some way like manufacture um, problems The um, what's it called? Um, pro, uh, prevalence induced concept change. Okay. Familiar with that? No. Um, very cool. So like in psychology, what they do is they show you like a blue dot. Okay. And then they put like one drop of purple in that blue, but it still looks blue. Mm. And then over time, they give you blue dot, blue dot, blue dot, blue dot. And they keep adding one drop of purple. And before you know it, you keep saying that it's a blue dot, but it's very purple. Yes, like the frog okay. in, the, in the toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they said was essentially, um, what they connect these two with ideas is as things get better, what feels worse um, changes. Right. You know, so like my students, like, schools a couple a couple decades ago never didn't even have air conditioning mm -hmm. but now if my, if my classroom's 78 degrees they're like it's so hot in here you know like like the, what your your life is so nice and good you do have running water you do have toilets you right. do have that kind of stuff um uh that what is a problem 
seems to change. And that could, you could say that with like, with like racism and discrimination. Right, you know? of course. Chris Rock had a joke like 15 years ago where he, would, he was talking about how, you know, black people were saying they can't get a taxi cab in New York. He's like, you talk to an old man, they're like, we were the cab. A white person just jump on your back and tell you where to go. Like that, there is that element. And um, when Jussie Smollett um, hoax thing happened, Don mm-hmm. McWhorter said, this is proof of how far we've come. Right. The fact that, you know, some two white supremacists jumped a guy and put a noose around his neck. And that was a hoax. And a lot of people knew it was a hoax because that kind of stuff just doesn't happen in Chicago Mm -hmm. shows how far we've come, Mm -hmm. you know? And so racism is still very real, but, um, but it's less prevalent and it's less harsh, you know, like when things are called a modern day lynching, um, it's not in very rarely, if ever anymore, is it an actual lynching, like with a rope and mob rule. So what, what you have to try and you kind of move the goalposts a little bit to try and progress. And I get it, but, but what is deemed as these, these terrible acts would not probably have a couple of generations ago. And that shows how far we've progressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While we're on race. Yeah. We, um, I used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm from Charlotte and we moved to Cleveland, Ohio yeah. um, for my husband's job for a couple of years. We're just here for three years. And um I knew nothing about Cleveland. I've learned a lot. And it's, I just realized that it is the poorest large city in the country. It's surpassed Detroit, which I had, I was like, no way. Surpassed Detroit. Um, It is over 50% black and that's new for me and totally fine. Totally welcome it. No problem at all, but that's just new. And so my sons are in, they're in daycare and they're now, you know, they used to be basically there. Are, I think there were a couple kids of different races in their class. Now, I think they're, you know, one of three white kids in a class of 20 students. Yeah. It's amazing that my kids are getting this exposure, but it's just very different. And yeah. um, something that happened, you know, when late last year, when all these conversations were happening around race and race relations and everything um, with George Floyd, it, you know, and, and we were coming into this new school. And um, every time I heard people talk about, let, let's just do critical race theory or anything about critical race theory, I was, I was sitting there struggling thinking, okay, so you're telling me that we're supposed to tell our sons that they are this thing uh, who, who is a threat to the kids that they're trying to play with in class and love and who they come home crying because they want to stay longer at school and play with their friends who are black students and so it's like you're telling me that we're supposed to tell like how so my question to you i guess is multifaceted one how are you seeing this play out in your classrooms and two um at what point do we look at this and say and you've already alluded to this a little bit that like this is not progressive this is kind of regressive yeah you know at what point do we say we are manipulating the minds of these young people at what point is this like child abuse? Like telling yeah. telling students, so you just talked about like these, these two different scenarios. One kid comes to school, he got jumped, he got his shoes stolen. That kid has a whole different set of issues than another student that comes to school and is on antidepressant medication and all like, like they're yeah. already, life is already hard no matter where you are. And so we're just gonna lay this on top of them and say, so floor is yours. Yeah, so um, critical race theory has become this buzzword just like kind of recently. Yeah, I mean, even 
maybe six months ago, probably not even people weren't really talking about it during the George Floyd protests and stuff. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it was last um, week. Yeah. Yeah. What it, what it really is, is, is just looking at things through a racial lens. It's the simplest way I can put it. And in law school, it's like, like we look at the intentional law and then how it's been applied. And we just look through at, through a racial lens, then maybe we'll see disparities. And then if we see disparities, then we can say, okay, we can start taking the next step to see, is this law a racist law? Because there's, um, you know, Supreme Court cases going back like 150 years or so, something like that in San Francisco, Yik Wo was a, um, a Chinese like laundry, you know, um, guy who were a laundromat. And they were a lot of anti-Chinese sentiments in San Francisco at the time. And, and so they, instead of making anti-Chinese law, they made a law against like the kind of building that you can have to have a laundromat. And Chinese didn't have a lot of money. So they chose like a more updated building. So like you have to have like this kind of building if you want to have a laundromat, which wasn't on its face anti-Chinese, but it was, Mm -hmm. it was anti, you know, it's like, um, I knew someone who ran a, a bar and like a beach community here in LA and they didn't want like, Black people, they didn't want like, you know, like people from East uh, part of, of the city coming in. So it's not just black people, but like anyone who kind of, you know, whatever, like has like hip hop attire and stuff. So what they did was they didn't say, you know, no black people, no Mexicans, nothing like that. But they said, you can't wear Timberland boots. You can't wear do-rags. You can't wear jersey. Yeah, it's like, well. So what's your you know, intent? Um, so that's where the intent conversation comes in. Yeah, it's like, well, you're doing this to keep a certain type of people out and that certain type of people will be white people and black people, but disproportionately black, clearly. Right. Now, if you say you don't want Jewish people at your country club, you don't say you don't know Jewish people, you just say no no headwear or something like that, then they can't wear their, right. their yarmulke. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. So the, it's a valuable thing to say, okay, I'm going to look at things through a racial lens. That's why it was in law schools and it makes sense to have that among many other lenses to see if you're making laws, how could there be intended or unintended racist, um, uh, you know, uh, repercussions. But that's not what this is. Now, from that, um, individuals said, okay, I'm going to take this racial lens and I'm just going to keep this racial lens on all the time. Then it turned into a whole bunch of different facets, branches off of critical race theory, of all these different kinds of critical theories and things like that. So if you're critical fat studies, then you look at everything as how is this disproportionately negatively affecting obese people? Mm-hmm. So you say like, oh, you know, um, the vilification of fast food. Uh-huh. Well, that's, you know, that's vilifying people who, who eat a lot of fast food and that would be disproportionately obese people or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what these critical theories are all doing. And um, more so than even like saying, you know, your, your white sons are bad because they're oppressors and, uh, and the black kids are the oppressed by like your your um, child's grouping and stuff like that. That does happen, but I think more than that, what's happening more commonly is having kids be extra aware of their race. So it's not just like, good, these kids are good, you're bad because of your skin color. That's a lot of what Fox News says, and I don't think that's, I think it happens, but it's not happening um, as much as what's really happening. It's happening now in society and in schools is you should pay attention to your race because if you have this race then you are at a disadvantage and you have this race then you're at an advantage but just see race see it and it's weird because my kids are they're we're in a pretty diverse situation like a lot of our friends are very diverse and stuff like that my kids genuinely don't now they're half filipino half white so they're kind of mixed but like 
they'll say stuff like, I showed them elements of Last Dance with uh, with Michael Jordan. Oh. And my six-year-old's like, hey, check this out. He came out with like a jersey. He's like, don't I look like Michael Jordan? It's like, yeah, buddy, you do. Like, they they don't think like that. And you could go to the, the doll experiments and stuff like that, that young kids tend to, even black kids tend to like the light-skinned dolls over the dark-skinned dolls. But I don't think that that is any any real um, credible data to show that like people inherently think black kids are worse, black babies are worse than white babies or anything like that. I think it's probably just you see the feature is better or something on a doll. Mm, but okay. um, but I think that's more of what it is, is, is just making kids very aware that you are different than that person, regardless of what your standing is. And I think that that takes away from our common humanity, which is what we want to aim for is we're actually not different. Like, like literally surface deep, literally skin deep, which we've established for a long time is, is not the way that you understand people and the way that you make connections. It's, it has to go more than skin deep. You talked about, you know, um, like diversity of, of, of ideas. It's like, if you could have, a, you could have six or seven different computers with different plastic shells on them. And some of them are blue and some of them are black and some of them have stickers and some of them don't, but if they're all running the same software the same computer it doesn't really matter compared to say you know my macbook pro looks maybe like yours or like everyone else's or whatever but totally different you know things are on it that's that's diversity and we that's the diversity that we need um to get to the best ideas you know that's where you get the resistance because i have different views and stuff like that so focusing on something that's only skin deep i don't think is the best approach as opposed to focusing on how, because your skin color, a million different things, you might see things differently. You might be different in here. Well, let's, let's get to what's in here as opposed to what's skin deep. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Well, for sure. How do your students respond to all this? Um, it's, it, so I'm at a more homogeneously mixed school because it's a religious private school, which is strange because I'm, I'm not like part of their, their community at all, but, um, but there still is diversity. So I, 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 I've had black students and I've had, you know, I have a couple of Hispanic students last year and stuff like that. Like um, kids from, you know, Morocco, kids from South Africa, kids from Europe, kids from um, Argentina, like all over. So um, because uh, they're in Los Angeles, they're, they're, they're seeing this and they're tend to lean more on one end of the political spectrum. But mm -hmm. I, um, I think that they recognize that this is not the best approach. I th I mean, my students do probably because I push that, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, and I also not just push it. I shouldn't say that. I think more accurately is I bring it up and then if they get pushed back, I explain it. So, I mean, even the way I explained it, but like just now, if someone says, well, I think that is good because of these reasons, I'm all ears. Okay. Well, Here's why I think it's bad. And that's that resistance. That's the resistance that we need, just like muscle resistance. So um, because my school is one that very strong, like the top of the, of the hierarchy of what's important for this school is um, debate and conversation. And I'm the, the coach of the debate team and all that kind of stuff is like, let's hash this out there. Let's figure it out. And because of that, I think they see where the bad ideas are because they're allowed to push back. And the mm -hmm. whole point of, Kylie the American Mind, when he talks about these, you know, people coming onto a college campus, like a Ben Shapiro coming on college campus and being 
shut down being called a Nazi when he's an Orthodox Jew, right. who was actually the number one target of um, the alt-right in 2017. He was the number one target of the alt-right for anti-Semitic slurs and harassment. In 2018, he was on the list of the alt-right. So how do you make that? If you call someone who wears a yarmulke 24 hours a day a Nazi, then your narrative about this person isn't accurate. Right. You have to, you have to, Ben Shapiro, I can crit- criticize him forever, but try to do so accurately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so you were just talking about debate. So you have a podcast. Let's mm-hmm. give the name for your podcast. Yeah, Cylinder Radio uh-huh. is the name of it. So the idea, and um, I don't know if you have the visual, but like mm-hmm, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's just like a, like a can of soda or something like that is, well, from one angle, it's only a circle. So you see a circle because that's all you've ever seen. So that spotlight hits here and you see a circle, the spotlight hits here and you see a rectangle. So what happens is you're on different ends and this person swears that this is real, this is true, this is good, this is moral. And someone else goes, no, you're wrong. And it's like, what are you talking about wrong? Well, this is my lived experience is just seeing a square. I was around people that just see squares. I've been taught that this is a square. It has four, four sides of this equal length, whatever it is. And the other person's showing, throwing the same amount of proof back. And, but what you have to do is take a step back and you have to, or walk to the other side. And that process of walking to the other side, you go, oh, that is true too. Damn, there's a lot of truth that can overlap. And they're not necessarily in contention. They're working together. So I think that you have to have that, that back and forth, that battle of ideas to see that there are legitimate reasons why you see a circle. And it might be, even something like, you know, like they're mentally ill or something like that. <laughs> you go outside and you see um, the sky is, is, is gray or green and you really, and you're arguing for that. There might be a reason, maybe you're colorblind, maybe you got a head injury and your brain sees something differently. Like there are legitimate reasons right. why even support bad ideas. And I think you can get to those even, you know? And like, so, so, so truth is very, very complex. And I think that what we're seeing is we're in a very like fast food, um, click but, clickbait, like quick world when it comes to our economics. It's all about quarterly, you know, stock value. When it comes to food, get quick food. You know, everyone wants to take a pill to feel better, all that kind of stuff. We're all quick, quick, quick. So social media is all quick. And there's so many characters. You only, only list this kind of character, only this, this length of a video. And in doing that, we're not seeing the cylinder. We're just getting... We're just getting the circular square. Fox News is just going to go, you know, circle, 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 circle. And all the circles are like, yes, this is so right. And then MSNBC or CNN or whatever is saying, just rectangle, rectangle. They're like, yes, this is such a rectangle. Can you believe those people see a circle? What an idiot. Doesn't even have any round edges. <laughs> Stupid idiots. <laughs> then the other side's like, oh, these idiots. They think that it's, it's, just, it's this all round. They think that there's a straight line. Do you see a straight line? Like, no. Yeah, they're so dumb. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. No, that's amazing. I had no idea that that's why it was named that. That's so yeah. cool. That's very yeah. cool. Um, I love that. And that kind of uh, leads me to where we're headed. And, you know, you have recently, or you have been uh, bringing on people that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. As much as I can. As much as you can. Yeah. And I, and I hear that too, that like people uh, struggle sometimes with doing that, with being able to get people who are willing to kind of debate live. Um, and, you know, this isn't my world. And so I'd be nervous to debate live too, but 
but people who were in it should be able to do that, right? If, if you really truly believe this as like what you, if this is your, you know, you should, I guess you should be able to do that. But anyways, my point is you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm curious, like what, what that experience has been like and what, at what cost has it come to you? And like, have, you know, I, I did last year, um, kind of, because I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of certain things. I think the thing that I'm maybe most passionate about is like debate and for people to both sides to be heard. And, and also, um, I, I really don't like the idea of identity politics. That really bothers me. Uh, I used the word earlier assumptions. I really hate when people assume something about somebody else. And I also don't like it when people get duped, like when people think that they're going to get something and like they've just been sold alive for so long and then like they're or be people being taken advantage of like that really bothers me um so so i got kind of heated last year and i shared a bunch of stuff and had friends come to me and say or friends like stop talking to me or friends come to me and say like what are you doing like what are you sharing i can't believe you're sharing these things and it's like i was sharing thomas soul and, <laughs> and it's just like okay top like thomas soul is so innocent to me in my in my opinion um, but you know what, but other stuff too. And like people who were, you know, Americans on the street expo- expressing their opinions, like people that you probably wouldn't see in the mainstream news. Um, that I just, I found interesting and it's like, I think you should see this. I, I doubt you're seeing it. I think you, I saw it. So I think you should see it just exposing my little circle to other ideas and other points of view. Um, I mean, my own husband, my own, my husband's a surgeon and, you know, he doesn't see even the same stuff I see. And we, you know, it's great. Like I showed him something this morning. Oh, yeah, my wife there, yeah. yeah. And I'm, and he's like, what, like, what is this? Like, yeah, I mean, so, um, so yeah, I guess, you know, what has that experience been like, you know, debating people and, um, and also like on, you know, while we're on, I guess, race issues, like hearing out different ideas, um, what is their case? Like people who are pro CRT or pro like that narrative, you know, yeah. what good do they see in it versus say like a Chloe Valdry, um theory of enchantment kind of thing. So what, you know, what's the, what's the debate? Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I think one thing that I would just um, make a suggestion, I mean, for what it's worth is I actually don't try to, to, to debate because um I try to have discussions and I, and I just want to, the, the way I see it is a debate is your are So I'm going to stick with the, with the metaphor here. Yeah. Uh, the debate is circle is better than ah, square. Okay. Or cir- this is a circle. Let me explain to you why it's a circle. So you're in it to kind of win. Like I do debate competitions and you win if you're the most convincing. And Got my it. wife is in sales and you know, you sell somebody, then you win where a conversation is trying to understand. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more curious about about the, the the cylinder so it's a lot more it's a lot of like wait a second i'm seeing a circle here how do you possibly see that and that's where the genuine curiosity comes in where in a debate there's not a lot of curiosity here it's more of standing my ground i'm gonna defend this mm-hmm. um you know but people don't have exposure to different points of view and all my radio or all my um my, my podcast you know i try to find people that don't fit the narrative whatever the narrative is. And it could be, you know, it could be a narrative of conservatives or liberals or whatever, like the, the narrative. So I've had on, um, like I had on Luca Eichludin, who is um, transgender, like MAGA hat wearing, gun toting, um, you know, like like Republican. Those are my Who's favorite trans- people. <laughs> people trans. that you wouldn't and expect. 
Wait, what? On uh, one I've been releasing this week is um, uh, uh, guys of my friend now Mustafa, who's he was raised in Morocco and he's Muslim and um, and he is a very strong pro-Zionist, you know, pro-Israel person, and he's Muslim and he's from Morocco and like, wait, wait, what? No, but that's not that's you're like and people just I want people's kind of like a, like like a spring to fly out of their ear like that's not what I thought that these people were. Right. So I have on you know a lot of. Not even just like like black Republicans, like a, like Thomas Sowell, who I do like, or like Candace Owens, who I'm not a huge fan of. Like, right. not them. It's more just like the like uh, black um, intellectuals or black liberals who are against, you know, like critical race theory or critical theory. Sure, yeah. Because what happens is is they say like, oh, you're a black person who's against the the you know whatever woke stuff. Mm-hmm. You are just like a Candace Owens. And they're like, no, actually, I am highly critical of Candace Owens. I've never voted Republican. I'm not a Republican. And then people are just like that. And then the spring flies out again. It's like, yeah, you're really into, um, is it Mark yeah. Lamont Hill? Is that who you're, yeah, yeah you're really into what he's doing? I mean, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but I like that he's opening up his platform right. to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important, you know? And so I, I love having those kinds of, kinds of conversations. But Agreed. when someone does like strongly disagree with me and say, you know, you're wrong and stuff like that. I will bring them on. I think they see it as a debate where they have to defend their ideas because I probably will attack ideas that I believe are bad. Um, Not attack the person, but attack the ideas of like, here's why I think this idea is really bad. Um, So in that way, I guess I kind of do, but I still try to make it a discussion, but people don't want to because it is Again, it's like how they identify their ideas. Like you said this in the beginning, like, you know, your ideas are who you are, but they're not. But if, if your brain doesn't know that. So if your ideas get attacked, your brain thinks that you are getting attacked. It's like called psychological backfire effect. So um, someone is very like anti-gun or mm-hmm. something like that. And you give them all kinds of gun statistics, you know, 98% of crimes uh, are committed with a stolen gun or, you know, guns save this many lives and far more lives than they take every year or whatever it is, they don't go, oh, okay, then I believe that now. They actually hold their belief harder because they say, oh my gosh, my my belief is being attacked. Right. So if I, if I say that like, you know, veganism uh, isn't as hell, isn't super healthy, it actually kills a lot of animals that get caught up in the combines and stuff like that. And you're a vegan, my wife was a vegan for a while. And she's just like, oh, interesting. Well, okay. But her identity wasn't being vegan. She did it just because it's like limiting in your, in your diet and, and limiting uh, diet was good for her. But if you are, you know, vegan dude 35 on Instagram, then that's who you are. Don't tell me that who I am is bad or a threat or anything like that because then you feel attacked. So I think that we have to separate and say we're human beings with ideas, like you said, like clothes that can, you can change because then you'll see the, the, the pushback more clearly as opposed to a personal attack. Because you don't want to get personal attacked. I don't want to get personally attacked. And when you do, the emotions fly up. The amygdala, amygdala gets hijacked and you just kind of lose your sense of, of, of uh, like rationality. So we don't want to do that. So I think the pro CRT people are dealing with that a little bit because the, the, the debate over critical race theory is so poorly done. A lot of the people who, who know what it is and are critical of it, they aren't brought into the conversation as much. Mark Lamont Hill has brought in a couple, but largely it's people um, on like conservative, conservative outlets who don't even know. And Mark Lamont Hill has brought a couple on. He said, can you define critical race theory for me? And they can't. 
but they're pushing legislation to ban it, but they can't even talk about what it is. I mean, I've read, I've spent a lot of time reading the critical race theory books and a lot of the critical race theory papers and stuff, because I can't criticize something I don't understand. One of the things I'm actually um, planning on doing, Ivy, is I'm going to, I'm going to do, um, I want to do a steel man debate. So this one will be a debate where you, I'm going to try and argue and debate for critical theory, critical race theory against someone who I'd like to, I want to find who is a pro CRT person and they're have to, going to have to argue against it. Cause I think I can argue for it better than even a lot of the people who are pro critical race theory. Cause I know it really well. What, I mean, what are they trying to accomplish with it though? I guess is my they're question. They're trying to end racism, but it's like to say you can't. So, okay. It's a steel man. So essentially you can't fix a problem that you don't deeply understand. And see. Yeah. So to ignore it is not going to fix it. Racism is a serious problem. I don't think it's a serious, I think it's far less of a problem than other things that we have. Um, uh, but I think they see it as a very serious problem. I think a lot of that is media. I think a lot of media will hype up certain narratives and get people excited because racism is so obviously wrong. We know it's wrong that you can't openly speak, you know, say racist things. Anyone can, you know, even if you're a hardcore alt-right person, like they, it's not open racism anymore, which, cause so we know it's bad. So the PRC pro CRT people um, are following these news stories that are just like pushing this race bait stuff. And they believe it's a worse problem than it is. Um, and then they're saying it's still a problem, but it's a worse problem than it is. And they say, well, we got to solve it. So the way to solve it is to become aware of it. And then we have to understand all the dynamics that are going on. I think there's good intentions there for the most part, but there is a faction that does see it as a power thing that you take the power dynamic, you say straight white men at the top and they have always had the power doors have always been open. And then, you know, you know, queer women of color or whatever at the bottom, because they are, are intersectionality, they've been denied so much. So what we're going to do is inverse it and give those at the bottom, the, the power to, you know, have their voices heard. I don't know if you saw in the, the democratic debate at one point, there was a black trans woman who go, got up and stole the mic and just and took over the show and just started talking and no one said what are you doing stop no there's a process here give that you can't like have to call security no you can't just stand up and start yelling into a mic but they didn't do that because it was a black trans woman and the, the idea is like well give them the power because they haven't had it so i, I understand it but i just think it's, it's a dangerous road when you tell certain individuals that no matter what your actions you can do no wrong because you've been so wronged in society that now you can do no wrong. Um, and we see that with like looters. Mm -hmm. We see that with people, you know, you can be like a black dude who um, gets pulled over by the cops and then runs away from the cops and, or attacks the cops and then is killed. And it's like, well, it's not really his fault because of historical injustice. That's not helping him. It's not helping us as a society. Yes, historical injustice is real, but we have to absolutely work that within your individual behavior absolutely matters. So I think that they're just, they're, they're too short-sighted in their thinking. Um, that's their intention, I believe. Something that I'm sure you've heard talked about is, uh, you, and you just used the word short-sighted. I mean, people, people are developed, like I have been developed over a century. Like yeah. my grandparents, how they raised my parents is how they raised me. Like each and every one of us is developed that way. And so you, we entered the conversation with you talking about like grace, like what's so interesting to me is 
you can go anywhere in America and people are a product of their environment. People are a product of how they were raised about their culture and everything like that. And you can't be mad at them for, for that because they weren't exposed to anything else. And some people, you know, depending on, like you were talking about the kids with, you know, two different schools, the kid who's coming to school with no shoes, who, who may not have parents, who, you know, who doesn't have lunch money, like he has a whole nother set of issues. He doesn't have mental capacity maybe for, for some of the same things that somebody else has capacity for. Cause he's got to worry about like, when, when am I going to get dinner? Where am I going tonight? Like that goes back to my word about assume, like you, it just, I'm sure you've heard of um, J.D. Vance huh? and J.D. Vance yeah. wrote, wrote the yeah. book Hillbilly LG. That's like so near and dear to me. I went to school in Appalachia. Like I know those people. I know that world. I've, you know, spent time in Kentucky and we drive through West Virginia every time from North Carolina. Like I know that world. That world is experiencing life probably in a similar way just because of, you know, money as a poor black Drug child. addiction. Drug addiction. Like just... We all feel that, like no matter where we are in the race, spect- skin color spectrum, we all need certain things. We all need love. We all need approval. We all need food and shelter and security. And so this idea that like a white person and a black person don't need the same things or don't feel the same things or don't want the same things, like what's what's the point of all this? I think they don't know. I mean, look, a lot the critical critical race theory, critical theory, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell, like they're they're college professors. So again, they're not in Appalachia, they're not in the housing projects. You know, Thomas Sowell, um, he's you know, he's from the poverty street, he's from Harlem, like he, you know, grew up poor and stuff like that, but like he's an old man now. And like there once you spend a lot of time, you know, this was developed, critical race theory was developed at Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School. That is so far from like, you know, rural Alabama, like black community. Like it's not the same world. So what the problem, again, another problem of this is you're not really focusing on what will help those in need. And it could be white people in Appalachia or black people in, you know, Detroit or Cleveland. It's like, what do they really need? Well, they need jobs. They need skills. They need skills. They need nutrition. They need, you know, healthcare, all this kind of stuff. They need, you know, safety and security. And there's so much of that. And like the gun issue, I bring up a lot because like gun laws are, you know, very um, strongly um, advocated for like more and more strict gun laws in cities where you call up and a cop and a, you know, police officers right there, or in, especially in like liberal cities where, you're not, you don't need to protect yourself the same way, but you go into, you know, like the hood of, uh, in LA, the cops might take two hours to get to you. You know, it's like that public enemy song, 901's a joke in my neighborhood. Like, so you can't say what works for you in Manhattan or for you in West LA or whatever it is, is going to be good for someone in Wyoming or in, you know, rural Mississippi or something like that. You, you can't push that. And there's nothing really specific about critical race theory because it's a lens to talk about this stuff, but there's nothing about solving problems. It's not like, because it's actually really hard to solve problems. I mean, like, it's like, how do you fix these poor communities? Well, it's a lot of things. You got to make sure that you have male role models. You got to make sure that you have things for these kids to do. You got to make sure that you have good nutrition. Well, that's hard. 
And it's so much easier to just rip things down. Think about how hard it is. And I talk about this a lot, this metaphor of like how hard it is to build a home compared to destroy a home. Oh, right. To build yeah. a home, you need the architects, you need the, the people doing, you know, framing and you need the, you know, electricians and all that. But to tear it down, you just need two or three guys with sledgehammers. It's so easy. And a lot of what this critical theory is, is it's critical. So you're tearing things down to look at them, to, to look for disparities, but there's nothing to build up, you know, like defund the police or something like that is either to defund like complete, like what we've seen in Minneapolis and Portland, which is not good, obviously, or it's, they say reallocate, but even that, that's, that's so, what does that even mean? Reallocate to who, how, like to what, like there's no formal policy about how that goes. And that's what I'm trying to engage in is get that, that important nuance, but People aren't thinking about that. They're just thinking about the surface level stuff. Systemic racism, I can get behind it, but only if I pick specific things, whether it's the war on drugs or whatever it is. I gotta, but just to say that society is racist, like, no, Thomas Sowell says, you know, it can't, it's not that. You have to look at discrimination because racism is in the mind. So these are all things that we have to be able to work out so we can actually problem solve. And that's why I call myself a progressive. I'm trying to fix these problems but we're not, we're not even talking about how to fix the problems in any kind of real way. I'm a financial planner. And so I'm a planner by nature and I'm a problem solver. It's like, give me a problem and let's like try to piece it together and fix the problem. And I think that's my criticism too, of, of all of this. When I look at it, I'm like, who are you helping? Who's this helping? Like who, who, yeah. who feels better after having, who feels like, yeah, I can go home and I can, you know, my problems are solved now that we've like talked about how my race is an issue and how their race is an issue or whatever. I don't, I don't. There's no quantifiable way. I'm sorry, cut you off, but there's no like if you say Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, or any critical race theory person, um, you say like, give me one example of how this benefits teaching a school. If they do some sort of privilege walk or something at their school, show me data of how this benefits them. So whether what does that look like? Schools, you know, test scores or literacy rates. Show me how it improves that. They can't because it it's not quantifiable. They're not quantifying any kind of positive it's all it's all just subjective it's all just like well it makes them more aware like show me data and evidence and there is none so something i think storytelling is like the most humanizing tool you could yeah. possibly use and uh we use a lot of i use a lot of stories and illustrating points um with clients and um, and with my sons and my dad always used stories when teaching me. My dad is amazing. He's uh, a veteran. He's my boss. I work with him and he um, he's kind of like my moral compass, if you will. Um, and so he's very important to me. And um, but I'm curious because basically all this is, is teaching empathy, right? It's saying like someone else's life might be harder than yours and you need to recognize that and be grateful for what you have and understand that like someone someone else may not be coming from such a privileged place as you and privilege comes in many shapes and sizes and so it's like you know because i the struggle that i have in thinking about all of this is like what does a child with disabilities think right now like physical mental disabilities who's sitting there saying like I was born with handicaps and things that make it harder for me to physically exist in this world. And then looking at some child who's physically privileged in every way and, and to say like, oh, because I'm white though, I have it better than them. 
I really struggle with that. And so I wonder, and when you have a child who's disabled, because I know a lot of people who do, when you have a child who's disabled, you don't teach them that you're handicapped. You teach them that right. you can do anything in the world that you possibly could want to do. You can, you can conquer everything. It'll be harder. It'll be different for you, but you can do anything. And yet here we are like pulling children back and saying, no, the world is against you and, and you have it worse instead of, and so I think the only thing that I see in critical race theory, maybe, like you said, is just teaching people like, or, or just talking about empathy and saying like, hey, it's possible that you, that because of your circumstances, you have it better than, and, and don't they, I mean, do, do people, do teachers teach empathy in school? Like, is that a thing? Uh, yeah, I think they do. I think that, you know, and again, it depends on the school, but the, the empathy is not equally applied. So, you know, some of the most, like the real empaths that I'm friends with, you know, they're obviously on one end of the political spectrum and they like, let's just say, don't like Donald Trump. Okay. But when Donald Trump got like COVID, they were like, oh, I hope he dies, you know, or something, or something along those lines, you know, it's like, whoa. So empathy is, is uh, like, this is just like the psychology of it is like, you know, we, we have it because when your baby's crying, you want to feel its pain. So you go take care of your baby. You know, it's like the mother bear thing. Mm -hmm. But you're, when you have empathy for, a, for, for someone, it's your baby more so than other people's babies. The mother bear doesn't care if you go after the squirrel, it cares about its cub. And then it becomes really vicious to anyone attacking its baby. So your empathy is, it's a double-edged sword. It's protecting and in protecting, it's I will kill anyone that threatens this. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is, is there, there, there's an empathy for this group of people. So it could be, you know, BIPOC, you know, black and brown, whatever people, but there is an empathy. What about the empathy for, yeah, the white kid who has Asperger's does pick up on social cues. So he gets, you know, the pronouns wrong and is then labeled a bigot. And then it's like, but like, whoa, their whoa. brain doesn't work like that. Like, yeah. you know, or there's so many, I watched um, this like Will Smith and Jada Smith, like they were sitting down with some white girl who was, was like saying something problematic. And they were like, you know, you just need to recognize your privilege. And it's like, you're, it was like Jada and Will Smith's kid. It's like, yeah, she's black, but like talk about privileges. Oh my gosh, come on. Like, you can't say that that is like the privilege is, your skin color because it's not right you know like you talk about handicap i had um sydney smith on my podcast who lost both of his legs he had chartmary tooth disease which is basically your ankles and legs fold in and break all the time oh my so God. he had that and when he was like 25 years old or something he got his legs amputated and he was depressed and all that kind of stuff obviously you lose your legs but then he became an iron man triathlete and he actually completed the iron man two years ago and he's just like a savage. He gets up at three in the morning and swims two miles in like a cold lake and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, the handicap wasn't my legs. It was my mindset. Yeah. And he's like, and then once you do that, then it spins. And that can happen. If it can happen for a guy with no legs, then it can absolutely happen for someone who's Native American or Hispanic or black or whatever. Is like, oh man, I can, yeah, things are up against me historically. Well, that just means that I'm resilient. Like, look at what you're, if you are belonging to one of those groups, your ancestors survived to get you here. They went through all of it. If you're an Eidos, an African descendant of slavery, you're a black person in America whose descendants are from, from slavery. Like they, that means someone in your lineage survived that middle passage. They survived that. Most didn't. 
They survived a life of slavery. Most didn't. Then they got out. Then they got to the modern day. Then they made you and you're able to be here in school. Like, damn, like they cut away all the weakness and you are left standing. You are so strong. Don't tell me that if I compliment your hair, that is going to, that's like harm, harmful to you. It's a that I mean, it might be, but that's a, that's going back to what we talked about earlier. That's disrespectful to the people who got you here. And Absolutely. that's kind of the, the way I try to promote it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I watched the film Uncle Tom when it first came out, Larry Elder's film. It would give me great pride to see like what my ancestors were able to do with all that was stacked against them. And it would make me feel like, oh my God, like all the sacrifice that was made, all the adversity that was in front of me. And yes, there's adversity in front of me today, but it would embolden me to just keep going. And um, I interviewed a young guy. Um, he's crazy. He's 21. His name's King Randall. Have you heard of him? I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's in Albany, Georgia, and he is trying to start. And he's like the whole, the city is now coming up against him because this is against the narrative. Um, this young black man who's trying to start a boarding school for, for black boys uh, in Albany. I think it's, I think it's mostly black, but um, in Albany for students who like don't have parent or don't have fathers in the home, there's a lot of violence, there's, you know, issues at home or whatever, but he's saying, I want to take them out of their circumstance and help give them a better life and do it through this school program. And if you hear what he's saying, that's so against the narrative, like what you're talking about, who you want to interview. And like, that's not what you hear. Like that's a young, there's a young man right there who believes in himself, who doesn't agree with the victim narrative. And who's like, no, I'm going to build strong men. Like we, and I asked him, I was like, what is the greatest threat to, to young men in your area? And he's like, well, for one literacy, but two confidence, like feeling that they are worthy of existence. And so here we have in the schools telling you like, don't be you, you know, why would you be confident? Like you have all these things stacked against you. Like, no, 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 we need to be telling them like the disabled child, you know, you can do anything. Yeah. Live up or down to expectations. And the, that's one of the things that we're seeing now is lowering the expectations for black and brown kids. It's like having UCLA, like, oh, if you're too emotionally distraught then you don't have to take the final or getting rid of, of advanced math classes because black kids disproportionately do poorly on it. Like, that's that's a problem with your your educators. It's not a problem with black kids. Like, what are you talking? What are you talking about? Like, I've taught so many geniuses throughout my life, and some of them are at the private school, and some of them were drug dealers in East LA. And if there, you just need to tap into that. Don't lower the expectations because if you lower the expectation, like my kids like act up. I'm six and a, and a three year old. If they do something that's like wrong, I nip it in the bud. What are you doing? That's not what the way we, that we behave and stuff like that. It's cruel not to not to hold high expectations for these kids I would agree. Um, but that's what john mccorder says he's like this whole thing of like you know black people shouldn't have to be you know learn like latin and greek in college and he was going off on that he's like they should be instead learning like swahili and he's a linguist and he's like swahili is way easier than latin and greek he's like why why what do they want they don't think we can and to someone like John McCorder, who's like a super genius, I get why he's really offended by that. You know, it's like, don't say that I'm not, that I'm not capable. That's, and that's kind of what's being said. It's just not being said in a malicious way. It's being said of like a kind way. Like, don't like how my, uh, my kid's grandmother, like spoils them. 
Like, oh, you're uncomfortable? Come here. Like, of course, yes. You know, and that's <laughs> the fun of being a grandparent. Nuts, right, yeah. Yeah, it's fun being a grandparent. It's like, oh, you want candy for dinner? Here's candy for dinner. Right. It's the grandparent's job. So like, I love it. But like, but that's not, that's not how you get them better. And that's, and that, I think that's the, the way that we're leaning more and more. And it's, it's not going to be good, but it's like, well, candy's good though. It's hard for the person who's being offered the candy to just be like, oh, you don't have to take the final because your skin color. It's like, like me in high school, I'd be like, cool. I'm going to say, hey, make my life harder. So I don't blame the people who are backing this up. Like, all right, I'll take it. But it's just, it's not, it's, it's my offering. It's not, it's not good for the long term. Like I said at the outset, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. So I don't know enough about like Mao and Chinese history or like Soviet Union, things like that, and Cuba and all that. But like all these, I feel like a crazy person where I like see these things. I'm like, this is, we're sowing, we're sowing seeds of discord between our people, between each other that, that doesn't need to be there and that as Americans it used to be like we're all American and we all I mean, we're a country of immigrants like it used to like it's crazy that we can all coexist in the way that we do and so and we all you know band together in in, in historical times against other countries who are trying to do harm to us right so now it's like we're we're these tribal beings doing harm to each other and um I'm curious like do you do you see in the United States, things that have happened in history in other countries coming to the U.S. and and like where does it go from here? I guess. Yeah. So I um I did a podcast with a woman named Karu Wang who spent time in China. Um, it was it was maybe over a year ago, but she broke down the kind of the Chinese like plan. So essentially, China was this, this powerful entity for a very long time, and then. Couple centuries ago, there was the opium wars, where basically the Westerners in, went into China, got them addicted to opiates, um, you know, pushed their wares, all that kind of stuff, and it really took China down to, to a good degree. And they've kind of been vowing for like um, payback against the West. Okay, and again, it's global politics. Like it's you know, I'm sure that George W. Bush went into Iraq, you know, because his dad didn't finish the job or something along those lines. So. Um, so the plan that they kind of like lay out that crew laid out in my podcast was fascinating because it's, it's, you take you, the only way you can beat America, you're not going to beat us with like guns and ships. So you have to basically cause a cancer within America. So you have it crumble from the inside out. And so uh, it's a lot of like, you take what's, what's fundamentally American, the best things about America. Okay. So that's like freedom of speech thing, like expression. And you turn that evil, you turn it bad. So now that's like hate speech and all that kind of stuff. And the influence that China has is undeniable. They changed the way that Hollywood makes movies. They, um, if you look up like um, uh, college professors that have been uh, paid off by China, I mean, there are many college professors at MIT, Harvard, UCLA are serving life term jail sentences for giving like missile secrets and all that kind of stuff to the Chinese. They come over, they have so much money it's like, it's worth a Google. It's unbelievable. And it's not talked about much again, because China has influence in news media. So it's, it's really dangerous. And it's not the Chinese people, but the, the CCP, the, the communist government of China is going after the West. It's like the, the cold war. So there's a problem here for sure. And 
you know, the, the socialist ideas like Marxism is there's a reason it's been around forever. It's been tried so many times is it sounds good. But once you understand human nature and once you look at history, the whole point of history is to learn from successes and failures. And it just it doesn't work. And, you know, what what happens is people say, well, it doesn't work because the people who end up running the show become corrupted over and over and over again. It's like, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's exactly right. the same. Yes. yes. Like, it's not. So it's not Marxism. It's Stalinism. Well, right. But who the and this is a Jordan Peterson thing, but like what they he says that they're that they're saying is if I was in charge, if I was in Stalin's position, then it would have been better. N- no, no, right. There's, it, it, it doesn't work. Um, and so, like, you can socialize certain things, public parks, police departments, maybe healthcare and stuff like that. It's possible, but it's tricky if you're going to do it right. Um, but we don't learn about Maoist China. We don't learn about the Soviet unions in school. We don't learn about the really? extreme left. We learn about Nazism, and Nazis are always bad, but people don't understand that Nazism, National Socialists, came after the Weimar Republic, which was way more like social justice socialist and then the nazis were the ones who took it the next step to essentially enforce it from a national level like if you want to really push you know very socialist very um social justice ideas then and people say no i don't want to go along with it what do you do well right now what we do is you cancel them you label them a bigot and stuff like that because those are the weapons that you have okay antifa shoots fire firecrackers at this courthouse but what if they had machine guns they would probably use them. You know, I don't, so the people who are vicious in their attacks of people who they deem as problematic or racist or whatever, they're using the attacks that they have at their fingertips. They want to do more. And I think that what happens is then you see when people do get power, then they use that power. And it's a a scary thing, but kids aren't even aware. They don't even know. If you, you find someone who's very progressive, ask them, what is too far progressive? At what point does AOC or something go too far? And people really struggle with that who are very, you know, social justice, you know, um, progressive people. They don't know where the line is because the idea is, no, the, the, we're going towards utopia. We're going towards utopia. Which Next stop. What? Like what, what even is Perfect that? society. And a, no soci- stuff a, a what society? A perfect society? Like utopia? Yeah. Just like a perfect society, you know, where there's no, no... Um, you know, that's why people say, like, I was talking to a woman who I did on Instagram live with, um, uh, uh, her name's Weez, like her like nickname or whatever. But, um, but she was saying something like, I just want to build a society where people can just spend time with their families and have food and have, you know, um, comfort and just be surrounded in peace. It's like, (laughs) well, yeah, okay. Every utopian concept, the problem with utopia, Ivy, is if you are aiming for the ultimate good heaven on earth, anything you do is justified to get you there. Because it's so good that you can do tremendous bad to get to that so good. And that's why, that's why the biggest number deaths are not from the Nazis necessarily. They're from Maoist China. They're from Soviet Union and that kind of stuff. Because if you have to kill 60 million people to get to a lifetime or generational supreme peace, then it's worth it. It's terrifying. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you're in a religious school. Is it a Jewish school or a Christian school? Yeah, it's a Jewish, Jewish school, a modern Orthodox Jewish school. Um, what, like, biblical lens? Do, do they put any kind of biblical lens on what's... Um, well, they're kids, so, like, they're not really in... I mean, they're, I mean they, they, it's more of, like, the practices. So it's very practical, what I've seen about um, the modern Orthodox Jewish community is, like, and I don't talk about it much, but I'll talk about it here a little bit. Like, it's very practical. They do Shabbat. So for 24 hours, every week, they don't flip a light switch. They don't get on their phones. They don't turn on a TV. Mm -hmm, they just mm -hmm. sit, and talk, and they rest, mm -hmm. and they eat. Um, and it's like, that's really beneficial. When someone dies, if it's a sibling, a parent, or a child, they do this like sitting shiva, I think it's mm -hmm. called. Which is basically, yeah, so you're familiar? Mm -hmm. So like, it's, There's a you know, large Jewish community in uh, Cleveland. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so you can't, you can't bathe. You can't leave the house. You can't, all you have to do is you have to mourn, just cry and mourn. Um, you know, like there's all of these things. It's like, that's good. That's really healthy. That's really healthy. That's really healthy. You know, when people say like, well, you know, cause there's a lot of anti-Semitism and stuff or Jews, you know, they just, they run everything. Why are they so successful? All this kind of stuff when they have been up against horrible, horrible discrimination, there was redlining against them and stuff. It's because of this, this like, this like operating system within the Torah and within their Bible of like, here's the way you act. You do this, you act this way, you do this, you do this. And if you follow it, it works, it works. So, you know, the, the single parent household rate is very low. The teen pregnancy rate is almost zero. The, the drug overdose rate is very, very low. You know, there's all of these things. There's a tremendous like community. I got really sick a couple of years ago. Um, and they sent me homemade meals for like 60 days in a row. They came to my house, delivered it. I live far away. Just like, here you go. Thank you for being a part of this community. I was like, what is going on? Oh my God. My friends in the community are like, yeah, it's smothering because everyone knows your business. There's no <laughs> secrets. It's like, it's all gossipy and like, but you are never alone. And, and, and like, that is where we are tribal. And so like to have that community, that sense of real community is why they're doing so well. Um, and it's, it's not, there isn't really like that. The beautiful thing about that is you can apply that everywhere then. So I'm learning a lot from being at this school and I would want to go back to East LA and like, how are the ways, what if everyone in, you know, everyone in America, you know, spent 24 hours to just get off their phone for, for 24 hours, you know, or really had a process for mourning when you lose a loved one and, and all that kind of stuff. That's just like two of many, many, many examples, you know, taking time to pray three times a day is basically meditation. You just meditated for 20 minutes, three times a day. I mean, you're a health person. You're like, what would that do for America? It'd be yeah. all these things would be just better. Um, and so, so I'm watching that I'm going, Oh, okay. Well, this is all stuff that other people could adopt. Mm -hmm. They just need an operating system. I think religion gives it to them. And I think religion is probably an easy, easier one. Cause it's all written out and it stood the test of time because people have all tried to crush religions. Um, but, but I think it's, it's, it's going in that direction is probably good for everybody in some mm -hmm. way, whether through religion or not, but to have like that structure mm -hmm. that like that discipline and structure is really important. Yeah. I think I've seen people that are like a, kind of against the progressive, we'll call it woke narrative, what have you. Yeah. Um, like, I, I feel like I'm hearing more people talk about religion now than ever before because because there are elements of religion or spirituality and all these things that's that circumvent that like supersede 
all of this. It's saying like, wait a minute, we're all human beings. So this whole race conversation, like why are we even having this race conversation? And so for me to say that is like, oh, we are coming from a place of privilege to say that you don't, you know, you don't see color or you, you know, whatever, treat everyone equal. Like I'm coming from that from a religious perspective where that's what the Bible teaches you. And so- Yeah, yeah, my podcast talked about that. That's what got her out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and what's interesting is like, one person's utopia might be completely different from another. So how in the world do you even reach utopia? Well, Adolf Hitler was aiming for it. Yeah. I mean, what? He was going to conquer the world and it would all be German utopia. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Something I'm struggling with too is people's uh, idea or people's thought that like, we live in the United States. Like no, no leader in the U.S. could be evil. Like no one could be evil. It's like, are you crazy? And that's why I guess where I lean towards his for you, like to you in history, it's like, yeah people are evil everywhere ever there is sin everywhere yeah. people are evil everywhere like just because we're yeah, in the u.s I mean, yeah go ahead yeah yeah like and, and i don't know if like is it people are evil or they just make bad decisions because they're messed up from a million different things right. you know like right. yeah so i'm sure they mean well i'm sure donald trump meant well i'm sure joe biden means well but they have tremendous blind spots right i would agree um yeah. what i guess is my last question um do you think people in just hearing what you the conversations you have uh and watching students and just you know engaging like do you think people want to be free or do you think people want to be taken care of i think people want to be taken care of and i think that um because again like when i was quoting barry weiss essentially or paraphrasing is we we don't see the negatives of being taken care of you know i talk to my students like if you're a if you have like a, if you're like a, a young girl and you have like a sugar daddy or something like that, you're like, I get my bags, you get to sit by the pool. Yeah. And you got to, you know, <laughs> hook up with this gross old dude. Like it's, it's not all good, yeah. you know? So I think that we're so being taken care of at this point has been so positive. They don't see the negative elements of that. They're just, they're like, Hey, I got this nude guy. Yeah. He's a little bit older, but he's really nice to me. And he buys me all these things and not like, Oh, wait a second. Hey, I'm going to go out with my friends. No, no, no. You're not going out with your friends. You're staying here with me. You're going to rub my feet. Like what? Like there is that element, but we just haven't seen it yet. Um, It's going on, you know, whether it's like through like, you know, spying on us, whether it's, you know, Amazon spying on us or the government, you know, like, or all that kind of stuff, but it hasn't negatively hit us yet. Where if you talk to people where this is going is it will Yonmi park in North Korea or whatever it is, these less free nations. There's a reason why we fought, tooth and nail to build this country is when you are under control yeah you're protected but but that that goes that there's that has a really sharp um other side to it that i think people are just unaware of i think they're thinking security is just always a good thing mm-hmm. yeah um i'll bring it back where we started with like muscle atrophy i think the way i see it is like you become just this like blob like you, you're not re- you lose your resilience you lose like when you are constantly cared for like what if one day that goes away like what do you do you don't have the tools you don't yeah. have the ability to take care of yourself and put a poodle out in the woods yeah 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 put a poodle out in the woods <laughs> right i mean it's like um uh, yeah someone i made a big career decision uh, about five years ago and this guy asked me well, Ivy, it depends. Do you want to be a house cat or an alley cat? 
And I was like, interesting. And so, you know, I, I was like, no, I want to be an alley cat. I want to be able to fend for myself. I was like, I see more opportunity there than being a house cat. And yeah, so I, I find, and I, I think there are a lot of the people that you and I listen to ask or like talk about being free or being taken care of. And I think I, I want in my mind to think that people want to be free because I want to be free, but, but I think you're right. I think um, comfort is, uh, we've become very comfortable. Life is pretty easy for, and easy is a relative word, but um, like we've been talking about, but yeah. Yeah. Um, any, where, where can people find you? And engage with oh you. yeah, so um, uh, the podcast available wherever podcasts are, um, Cylinder Radio, and I I, lo- I really love those conversations that I have. It's really cool um, that to be able to sit down with these very very diverse people to talk about controversial issues. So I love that. Um, but Instagram is my biggest um, social media platform. So it's just my name, Will Roosh, um, R E U S E H, and that's. So I do a lot of stuff. Um, that's how we connected and yeah. I do stories and I talk about things, post things. It's all, it's really a, an attempt at unity an attempt to use social media for something. I think social media is very human. Um, so what it's doing is we're like early humans, which are really tribal. Someone's coming to my tribe. I murder them and we're becoming <laughs> very divisive. And I think what we'll do, hopefully I want to try and model it to, to use it as social connection. I mean, the fact that I can, I, if I'm like, what is it? I wonder what a Asian girl in Georgia thinks. I could probably find some hashtags. I can find an Asian girl in Georgia and message her and just be like, can you tell me about what, what is it like to be you? The fact that I can do that in a few minutes is incredible, but we're not using it for that. We're using it right. for a lot of nonsense. So I'm trying to model, be like an early adapter to use this amazing technology for something very good. So that's what I use my social media for. And that's why I'm trying to grow it. And I spend so much time on it is I do believe that there's tremendous good to be unlocked in social media. It's just right now we're just, we're screwing it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, well, I'm really grateful for you. And I, um, I'm excited to share this with, you know, my circle and hopefully beyond. And I'm yeah. really thankful for what you're doing. I think it's extremely important. I would agree. I think a lot of people are, like shutting down from social media because they're just like it's so toxic and they don't want anything to do with it and i've probably said similar things i'm like ugh, gross like i don't you know it's just nasty i don't i don't want people just throwing daggers at me like i don't i don't want to engage and um i tend to lean into things rather than run away from them and i you're absolutely doing that you're you're putting yourself in tough positions and not everyone's brave enough to do that i think courage is the greatest virtue and um and I, th- I think it's, I think it's really awesome that that's what you're doing. Well, thank you. And if people disagree, then yeah, let's talk about it. And I, I, the worst case scenario for me is I get proven wrong and that's not a bad thing. That means I get to uh, walk away with a better idea. So it's growth. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to hear more, don't forget to click subscribe. If you'd like to help spread the word, leave me a solid review and tell your friends to subscribe too. On Pursuing is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.